You know, it doesn't take long in life for you to realize that things don't always go as you hoped, as you expected, or as you planned. It doesn't take long before you realize that life is full of disappointments, discouragements, and what might even seem at the time like disasters. As I think back, one of the first times in my own life when I realized things don't always go how I want was when I was probably about 11 or 12 years old. I had had a crush on a girl in my class for a few years. I'll not tell you her name. I'll make up a name. We'll call her Julie Smith. The reason I won't tell you her real name is because a few years ago, I moved back to the town that I grew up in, and I actually bump into this girl now and again, and I'll be mortified if I see her in the petrol station. So I had this crush on Julie Smith, and it began in P6 when I was sitting beside her. I remember on Valentine's Day, writing a card, I think it was obviously anonymously from a secret admirer. I can only imagine how I spelt the word admirer in P6. But I remember sneaking up to her house like a ninja, putting it through the letterbox and running away like a crazy boy. I probably should have put my name on it because for the next two years, Julie was completely oblivious to my affections or intentions. And then P7 came and the Christmas disco. We were all there in the hall. All the boys gathered up along one side of the wall, all the girls at the other side of the wall. And we were all staring at each other, waiting to see who would make the first move and ask somebody to dance. And a few of the more courageous ones went across and were dancing really awkwardly in the middle of the floor. But I had my eyes only on one girl, and that was Julie Smith. And I remember the song, it was the final countdown by Europe. I remember it playing, and I remember watching Julie move and starting to come across the floor towards me. My heart was thumping with the music. As the music got louder, my heart was thumping harder. I thought, this is my moment. This is the day when Julie and I get together, live happily ever after. And she kept coming towards me, and she walked straight up to my friend Tim and asked him, to dance. In that moment, I was absolutely devastated. This was not the way it was supposed to happen. I wanted to crawl into a corner. I wanted to cry. That was over 30 years ago, and I still remember it vividly today. My therapist tells me that by the time I'm 60, I may have worked through that. Not only had I lost the girl of my dreams, but I'd lost her to my friend Tim. And he was ginger. This was not how it was supposed to happen. I remember going home that day and sitting on the sofa on my own, just about heartbroken, trying to figure out what had gone wrong. My confidence was shattered. It took me a very long time before I would ever ask a girl to dance ever again. That's a somewhat sad and funny example. But I'm sure as you look back and reflect in your own life through the years and through the decades, you will have your moments of disappointment. You will have your own stories when you realized that life doesn't always go how you planned or expected. You will have memories and heartaches much more serious and much more significant than mine. Maybe the loss 
of loved ones. Maybe the divorce of your parents. Maybe having to go and live with a relative somewhere else because things at home weren't good. Maybe accidents and injuries that happened to you. Maybe the loss of a child. Maybe illness in your family. Maybe someone you loved leaving you. Someone you trusted betraying you. Life sometimes can be brutal. The pressure can feel like it's crushing you. The attacks can feel unrelenting. So how do you cope? How do you not fall apart? How do you find any sense of confidence in such an uncertain and shaky world? Well, as we come to John chapter 14 today, that's what we're going to be looking at because that's exactly how the disciples feel when we find them here. Like the bottom has dropped out of their world. John chapters 13 to 17 are all part of the one event, the one occasion, the one story. And it's the night before Jesus goes to the cross. It's Holy Week. It's Thursday evening on Holy Week before what we now call Good Friday. He's with his closest friends and they've just had what we now call the Passover, what they call the Passover uh, supper. And so it's his final meal with his followers. And so he chooses his words very carefully. Maybe you've been with a loved one before they've died. Maybe you've been with somebody who was going to leave for a long time, maybe move overseas. Those last conversations, you don't talk about frivolous or silly things. You choose those words very precisely and very carefully. Jesus knows that he's going to be arrested in the next 24 hours. He's going to be falsely accused. He's going to be tortured and he's going eventually to be executed and crucified. He tells them that the pass, during the Passover meal, even that one of them is going to betray him. That's Judas. He tells them that one of them is going to deny him. That's Peter, the one that they kind of looked up to as their leader. And the disciples are clearly stunned. Their whole world has suddenly imploded and they're completely shell-shocked. This was not how things were meant to be. Three years before this, they had left everything to follow this Jesus. They had put aside their jobs. They'd left their families to go on the road with this itinerant preacher. And they'd watched as he had healed the sick, as he had raised the dead, as he had taught the crowds, as he had done many miracles, as he had cast out demons. During this three years, their expectations had been rising. This was the glorious Messiah, the one that all of Israel had been waiting and longing and praying for, the one who would come and deliver them from Roman military oppression. And they are with him. They are part of the in crowd. They are the insiders. And things had just reached fever pitch just a few days before this, what we call Palm Sunday, what we are celebrating today. Jesus had rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
The crowds, tens of thousands of people had lined the streets shouting, Hosanna, glory to the king of kings, Hosanna in the highest. They thought this was the new king coming in to depose the old king. This was their savior. This was the deliverer. This is the Messiah. And the disciples were caught up in this because they thought we have followed this guy for three years and now this is our moment we are going to be the insiders with the guy who changes everything. And now in John 14, it's only four days later, and instead of talking about leading a military uprising against the despised Romans, Jesus instead is talking about suffering and dying as a servant. He's talking about being killed, laying down his life, leaving them forever. And as you can imagine, they are absolutely confounded. They're devastated. They're crushed. They're at a loss. This is not the way it was supposed to be. They simply couldn't get their heads around it. That's where we find them at the start of John chapter 14. You see, the chapters in the Bible were added later. So what we read in chapter 13 when Jesus talks about his death, when he talks about his betrayal and his denial, this is simply a continuation immediately on from that event. Look at verse 1 with me of John 14. Jesus said to them, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Jesus looks at them and he can tell by their eyes He can tell by the tension in the room. He can tell by their expression that they are anxious, that they have apprehension. He can tell that they are confused. That's what this word trouble means. When he says, do not let your hearts be troubled, that word means anxious, bewildered, perplexed, agitated, and stressed. The message translation puts it like this. Don't let this throw you. In other words, he could say they're completely thrown by what he has just said. Their leader, the one who has protected them, the one that they have followed, has just said he is leaving them and they don't know what to do. Things are never going to be the same again. You know, that's kind of where we are in our society right now. Things are never going to be the same again. I know we want the virus to leave and it will leave and I believe it will leave before a lot of the experts have predicted. I really do. But even after it goes, people talk about getting back to normal. Can I say things will never be normal again? We have got a whole new normal, a whole new reality that we're going to have to learn to live with. That's what the disciples are experiencing here. And so this whole chapter in chapter 14 is Jesus comforting them and Jesus reassuring them that everything is going to be all right. He wants them to know that he has taken care of everything they need before he leaves. So he says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be anxious. Do not be afraid. Do not be overwhelmed. I have everything taken care of. This might not be how you have planned it, but this is exactly how me and my Father in heaven have planned it. We have everything 
under control. I've got everything covered. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I want to speak that to you from the words of Jesus today. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be anxious at this time. Do not be agitated, but trust him. Look at what Jesus says in the next part of verse 1. You believe in God, believe also in me. Other translations say, trust in God, trust also in me. And when Jesus talks about believing in God and believing in him, this is not just a mental, intellectual believing. Most people in our community will say they believe in Jesus. They believe he lived. They may even believe he died and rose again. They believe he exists. That is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about trust here. He's talking about actively putting your trust in Jesus, actively putting your hope in God, not just intellectually, but with your whole heart, with your whole being. What does that look like for the disciples? What does that look like for us? What has Jesus got sorted out for us? What can we trust him with? The first thing he says is, trust me because heaven is your home. Look at verse two with me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place for you. You know, for five years, uh, we led a church in inner city Dublin, right beside, some of you might have been to the Guinness factory, right next door to Guinness. And a number of years before we left, a homeless hostel opened about just uh, 50 meters from our church. And there were over 100 homeless people staying there, people who obviously had nowhere to live. And we engaged with them and we built up a relationship with them and we put on special meals for them. I remember we put on a five-course Christmas dinner for them. We would go in and put on concerts for them in the hostel just to try and make their life a little bit more normal. But I remember the first time I went into this homeless hostel and I know the people who were running it were doing their very best. But I remember the deep uh, sense of sadness I felt. There was no sense of privacy in the place. There was literally a curtain separating everybody from each other. There was no sense of security. You had to keep your stuff locked up all the time or else it would go missing. There was no sense of permanence. It was a very temporary place. It was a very transient place. You would be basically kicked out in the morning at 10 o'clock to roam the streets all day in the cold winter weather. And then at 7 o'clock you would queue up hoping to get a bed for the night again. It was not a pleasant environment. It was a bed, but it wasn't home. Jesus tells his disciples, and that includes you and me, if you're a follower of Christ, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I am going to heaven to get your home ready. It will be permanent. It will be perfect. It will be safe, and it will be secure. You have nothing to worry about. I have your future covered. You see, this earth where we live right now, it's our temporary home. All of this is passing. Everything we see around us is passing. It's transient. It's not stable. It's not secure. I think if anything, the current situation has shown us this, that our lives are not as secure as we thought they were. One day, Jesus says, I will come back and I will bring you to the place I've prepared for you. And you will be in the presence of your heavenly father. It's not just 
uh, heaven, but it's the place of your father, a good father, a loving father, a gracious father, a compassionate father, the God who created you, the God who knows you, the God who loves you deeply. You will be back where you belong. You know, people say there's no place like home. I've heard it also said that when you go to someone's house, some people make you feel at home and some people make you wish you were at home. When we get to heaven, we will feel at home because that is the place we were created for. Not just the the place heaven, but the presence of God. You see, the greatest thing about heaven is not the golden streets or the pearly gates. The greatest thing about heaven is that we get to be in the presence of God. His glory will be the air we breathe. We will get to gaze upon his awesomeness and his beauty and his majesty and his splendor and his holiness for all eternity. That is the greatest thing about heaven. Not that we get to spend eternity in a nice place, but that we get to be in the presence of God. You see, I know some people And they say, I want to go to heaven. And I say, well, do you want a relationship with God? And they say, no. And I said, that's simply not possible. Because heaven is only heaven because God is there. It's a continuation of your relationship with God from this life into the next. That would be like me saying, I love your house. Your house is stunning. Your house is beautiful. I want to come and move in, but there's one thing. I don't like you, so would you move out? That's not going to happen. And yet some people think that God is going to let them into heaven, even though in this life they have chosen to reject him. That is simply not the case. There's a heaven that Jesus has prepared, but it begins now with a relationship with God. And that's what Jesus goes on to say. Look at verse 3 with me. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. I love doing weddings. It's one of my greatest joys is to do officiate a wedding. But back in Jesus' day, things were done a little bit differently. People were married much younger than they are now. And what would happen is the the groom or the groom's father would go to the bride's father and he would pay a, a dowry. He would pay a bride price. And they would, it was like a down payment. And from that moment onwards, the bride and groom-to-be were engaged, or the word they used actually then was betrothed. And what would happen was that then the the groom would go back to his father's house and he would build an extension on, he would build another room on for him and his wife when they got married. This whole betrothal would normally last around a year. And when the house was complete, the bridegroom would come back, sometimes in the middle of the night with his friends, with the best men, if you like. And very often it was unexpected Sometimes they would even blow a shofar or a trumpet to announce their arrival. And the bride's job was to be ready. Her job was to be prepared for when her groom arrived. She lived with a constant sense of expectation and anticipation that at any moment the groom could come back and take her home to the place he had prepared for her. Isn't that exactly the image Jesus is using here. He is the bridegroom. His church, the Bible says, is the bride of Christ. 
He has paid for us to be his. Not with cash, not with a dowry, but with his own precious blood. He has paid that we would become his bride. And he has gone to heaven now to prepare a home for us, to prepare a place for us. And one day the Bible says the trumpet will sound and he will come back for his bride. In Revelation 19, it talks about the wedding supper of the Lamb, when the bride and the groom are joined together and we spend eternity with him in heaven. One day Jesus is coming to take us home. How do we get there? How do we get to this heaven that Jesus is talking about? That's exactly what the disciples want to know next. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. Jesus says, you know the way to the place where I am going. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? I love Thomas, how literally he is here. Thomas basically says, Jesus, I have no idea where you're going. So can you maybe draw us a map? Can you give us directions? Maybe you could give us an address so we can put it into our sat-nav system so that we know the directions to heaven. And Jesus responds with one of the most significant and important statements he ever said. Verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, throughout his life, Jesus used all sorts of pictures to help us understand why he had come to earth. He said he was the bread of life so that bakers would understand. He said he was the water of life so that plumbers would understand. He said he was the light of the world so that electricians would understand. He said he was the cornerstone so that architects would understand. He said he was the hidden treasure so that bankers would understand. He said he was a great physician so that doctors and nurses would understand. He said he was the good teacher so that educators would understand. He said he was the lily of the valley so that florists could understand. He said he was the rock of ages so that geologists could understand. He said he was the true vine so that gardeners could understand. He said he was the righteous one so that judges could understand. He said he was the pearl of great price so that jewelers could understand. He said that he was wisdom so that philosophers could understand. And he said he was the word so that actors could understand. He said he was the good shepherd so that farmers could understand. He said he was the alpha and the omega so that scientists could understand. He said he was the way so the traffic wardens could understand. He said he was the truth so that politicians could understand. And he said that he was the life so that biologists could understand. Here in John 14, Jesus says this, if you want to have a relationship with God, If you want to be in that place that I'm going to prepare, here's how you do it. I'm going to tell you the way. And then he points to himself and he says this, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to God the Father unless they come through me. A number of years ago, I was speaking in Trinity College. 
And the subject I was given was this. Is it not arrogant for Christians to say that Jesus is the only way to God? And isn't that a very important question in our 21st century pluralistic multi-faith society where all religions are being seen as equally true and valid, where people say it doesn't matter what religion you follow as long as you're sincere, where people take little bits of all sorts of religions, like an all-you-can-eat buffet, and mash them all together and say, this suits me, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, which really means uh, I've got a religion that just suits me and doesn't make any demands of me. People say there's many ways to God. It's really, really important that we read Jesus' words carefully here. Notice Jesus didn't say, I am a way. He didn't say, I am one of many ways. He said, I am the way. Notice he didn't say, I'm one expression of truth. I am the truth. He didn't say, I'm one way that you can find life. He said, I am the life. I know Jesus isn't being very PC. He's not being politically correct here. But when you read something like this, this is from the words of Jesus. You can either accept it or reject it, but you can't ignore it. Jesus is either making a true statement or he's making a false one. It can't be both. He is either the only way to God and he clearly believed he was or he's not. The early church believed exactly the same thing. In uh, Acts chapter 4, the apostles are preaching to the Jewish authorities, the Jewish religious authorities, and they say this, there is no other name under heaven by which men and women can be saved except through the name of Jesus. There is no other name. Allah can't save me. Buddha can't save me. No other religion can save me. Only Jesus died for me and only Jesus can save me. Only through faith in Christ can I have eternal life. That does not mean we demean other religions. It doesn't mean that we put down people of other faiths. But it does mean that with confidence and boldness, we proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he is the only way to know God the Father. There is no other way. Now, people come to Jesus through all sorts of different ways. And that's okay. Some will come through a gospel mission. Some will come through church. Some will come through reading the Bible. And in and, and some countries right now where the gospel is not allowed to be preached, people are having visions and dreams and Jesus is appearing. There are many ways to Jesus, but there's only one way to God, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus take care, takes care of the disciples' anxiety and distress. He reassures that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I've done that, I'm going to come back. And I'm going to take you to be with me. Your future is secure. Your, your, your hope can be in me because I have it all taken care of. I want to finish now by jumping down to verse 27 in John 14. This is still Jesus speaking. He says, my peace I leave you. My peace I give you. I don't give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. At a time when many of us are cooped up at home and a lot of us have probably eaten our own body weight in chocolate and junk food, 
I came across on the internet one person's idea of how to have inner peace. It says this. By following the simple advice I read in an article, I finally have found inner peace. It read, the way to achieve inner peace is to follow all the things you have started. So I looked around to see the things I had started and hadn't finished. Today, I have finished two bags of crisps, a chocolate cake, a packet of biscuits, a tub of Haagen-Dazs ice cream, two large pizzas and a bottle of red wine. You have no idea how much inner peace I feel right now. That's one way to find inner peace. We live in a world where people are desperate for inner peace. And Jesus looks at his anxious, weary, scared disciples and he says this, I give you my peace. That peace that Jesus carries inside him. That peace that was able to speak to a storm and say, peace be still. That supernatural peace. Jesus says, I give it to you. I offer it to you. That peace which passes all human understanding or comprehension. He holds it out to you if you're a child of God. And he says, I make this available to you. Will you take it? It doesn't mean you won't go through sickness or sorrow or suffering. But in the midst of trouble, in the midst of heartache, in the midst of pain, you can experience a supernatural peace from God. You see, the world tries to give you peace. But it tries to numb your pain. It tries to offer temporary pleasure. But the peace that Jesus offers does not depend on circumstances It doesn't depend on what's going on around you or whether you're able to go outside or whether you have to stay in. It comes from his presence, his spirit living within you. But before any of us can experience the peace of God in our lives that Jesus talks about here, we first of all need to experience peace with God. Romans 5.1, Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified. Justified simply is a word that means put right with God, put into right standing with God. We have been justified through faith, through faith in Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to have peace with God is through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. How does this happen? Well, Colossians 1, 19 to 20 tells us, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. In other words, Jesus was fully God. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on heaven or things on earth, by making peace, here's how we have peace with God, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This Friday is Good Friday the day when we remember Jesus hanging on that cross at Calvary, on that hill at Golgotha, where he was nailed and where his blood was shed. And peace is only found in one thing, and that's the blood of Jesus. Peace is only found in one place, and that is at the cross where Christ died. And peace is only found in one way. And that is by bowing your knee in submission and surrender in repentance and faith and saying, God, I, for- I ask that you would forgive me. Jesus, come in to my life. I trust in you. There's no other way to find peace. 
There's no other way to find peace with God. There's no other way to find peace within. And really, there's no other way to find peace with other people except through Jesus Christ. And when we find that peace, I want to tell you we have nothing to fear. You see, the worst thing that can happen to any of us is death. I said it last week at the end. The root of all fears is the fear of death. We try to avoid it in any way we can. We can get Botox. We can exercise. We can take all the vitamins. We can eat healthy. You can do all of those things. But the reality is this. The statistics have never changed. One out of every one people die at some stage. We're all going to die. Sorry to bring you down on this day. But Jesus has gone to prepare a place for me in heaven. And therefore, even though I may die here in my body, it is simply a pause. It's a comma, not a full stop. And I, I just pass from this life into eternal life with him. That's why my troubled heart can't have hope. That's why your troubled heart can't have hope. In the midst of any storm, any suffering, any sorrow and any sickness. If you put your trust in Jesus, you know that your future is completely secure because he has taken care of the greatest enemy of all. And we will celebrate that next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. He has defeated and destroyed death once and for all. Just as I finish... Recently, I, I was speaking to someone who travels a lot with work, and they're really into football. And so when they're away traveling, they record the, the, the games on, on Sky Plus. They record the games of their local football team. But he, he said this. He said before he watches the recorded game when he gets home, he always checks the result. In fact, he only watches the games where his team wins. And somebody said to him, isn't that ridiculous? Does that not spoil the game for you if you know the result? And he said, no, actually, it makes the game better. Because he said this, I know that no matter how badly the game is going, no matter how far behind we are, no matter how many men we are down, no matter how many knocks we take, no matter how much it looks like we might be defeated, I know that at the end we're going to win. I'm backing the winning side. And then he said this, when, and this is important, he said this, when you know the end result, that profoundly affects how you perceive and deal with setbacks during the game. When you know the end result, that profoundly affects how you deal with setbacks during the game. Child of God, I'm here to tell you today, that you're on the winning team. No matter what's coming against you right now, no matter how terrible things might look, no matter how many knocks you've had in life, no matter how defeated, discouraged, depressed, or despairing you feel, I want to tell you that through Jesus Christ, you can have supernatural peace. You can live with courage and confidence no matter what your circumstances. Why? Because Christ has conquered death. He is completely victorious. You are on the winning side. The result has already been determined and therefore you have nothing to fear. So the simple question is this. 
Christ is offering you peace today. His peace. Will you receive it? Would you pray with me? And I want to especially pray today for those who have watched this and who don't have that peace in their lives. Jesus is offering you peace. But to have the peace of Christ, you need to receive Christ himself. And so if you're watching this and you're not a Christian, if you have never consciously put your faith in Jesus Christ and said, I want you to be my savior, I want you to do that right now. This is the most important decision you will ever make. I want you to say, from this point onwards, I'm going to follow you. Or maybe you have been a Christian in the past and maybe you've wandered away. Maybe you have just gone your own way and you want to come back again, would you simply say this very short prayer with me and receive Christ into your heart? Heavenly Father, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you that he lived the perfect life. He died for me on the cross and took my sin and he rose from the dead. I repent of sin and I choose to give my life to Christ. From this day forward, I choose to follow him. Holy Spirit, come and fill me. From this day forward, I am a child of God. Amen. If you have prayed that prayer, we want to rejoice with you. The angels in heaven are already rejoicing with you, the Bible teaches. Would you please drop us a message on Facebook, drop us an email, and let us know, and we would love to follow up with you. We're going to close our service now with very appropriate words, words that God would want to speak over you right now. Would you join me in worshiping God right now in your home or wherever you are as we join in singing the song, Take Courage. <laughs>